3: Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week, Caroline Crampton talks to George Eaton and Raphael Baer about rebellious Tory backbenchers, Philip Maughan talks to Caroline and Kate Mossman about why Taylor Swift isn't just for teenagers, and Ian Stedman and I discuss the possibility that your house might be swallowed by a giant sinkhole.
0: I'm here with Raphael Bear, our political editor, and George Eaton, the editor of the Staggers blog, to talk about the things that they've both written in the magazine, Raph about the Tories and George about Labour. We'll start with Raph's cover story, which has got the headline Captive Cameron, um, and about how uh, David Cameron's sort of being held prisoner by different elements of his party. What's that about, Raph?
1: Well, yes, it, the, the the starting point really is the observation that David Cameron will be... Fighting the next election, uh, he would hope on a on a platform saying everything has worked, Uh, it's fine. Maybe it caused a little bit of pain, but things are pointing in the right direction. Uh, Stick with us, Mm. Uh, and this is historically a classic electoral proposition it's sort of more of the same versus change has been essentially the 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 dividing line in every political every election ever um the interesting thing is that coalition slightly changes that it's one of the ways that coalition really destroys british political precedent is that there is no one party that will be campaigning in the next election on a pure more of the same prospectus because actually the conservatives are deeply dissatisfied with cameron personally but also with the compromises that have been made with the liberal democrats And also, through that frustration, they've acquired a much more uh, aggressive, puritanical, ideological commitment to drastic change. And they see uh, the austerity that has been contained in in, uh, George Osborne's budgets and spending reviews as really just the the baseline, the starting point for a a more ferocious assault on all the apparatus of of British government that we've inherited from the 20th century, whether that's the civil service, uh, the welfare state, um, the membership of the European Union, uh, and what this means ultimately is that David Cameron is very hard now to see what his offer will actually be at the next election when he is the, as I write, the sort of par excellence candidate of steady as she goes, more mm, of the same yeah. um and actually, everyone else will be saying, including many Tories, will be campaigning on there's, there's time for a change. I don't mean to say by that that Cameron can't win. Uh, I think it's hard to call, but you know, there's, there's every likelihood that he might be prime minister again after 2015. It's just extremely hard to see how he survives much beyond that. It's very hard to see what the prospectus is that will really make people think, yes, what we really need is David Cameron for another five years as Prime Minister, because not actually a lot of Tories don't want that.
0: And these turbo Thatcher, Thatcherites, as I believe you termed them in the piece, uh, what are they doing to try and manoeuvre the Conservatives in the direction they want them to go?
1: Well, you have to distinguish a little bit between people who are frustrated with David Cameron, but, but recognise that he's easily their best chance, the Tories' best chance of being re-elected, and uh, just sort of want to tug him to the right, and they do that in various ways, but obviously... Um, pushing more aggressively towards um, a Brexit position on the European Union, in other words, legitimising the idea that there's nothing to fear from Britain leaving the mm. EU, and then that should, in fact, be a mainstream Conservative position. Um, I think they're making a lot of progress on that. They would also probably want tax cuts um, and uh, a much more aggressive uh, effort to reduce spending and, and bring the debt down uh, faster than is currently foreseen. Um, Beyond them, there is a kernel of people who actually want to sabotage David Cameron. Now, we don't know how many of them there are. The estimates are probably... There might not be more than around 30 MPs. But that's actually quite a lot of people who who sort of think that David Cameron losing will be good and healthy for the Conservative Party because then you have a disastrous Ed Miliband that's government. That's almost as enough sit.
0: for a leadership challenge, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. And, and,
1: it, and certainly, I, I would be flatly amazed if a leadership challenge occurs before the next election. Yeah. Um, I do think, though, that there are enough people... Who want to see David Cameron fail that you for the fr- and pretty much certainly until the May European parliamentary elections and beyond, you will see this constant these constant ripples of disruption and disorder in the conservative ranks. I think if you get if if the Tories manage to push. Labour down or pull Labour back in the polls to something like parity, uh, indicating that their economic recovery is giving them an electoral dividend, the Tories will then start to shut up a little bit and Labour will start to look nervous and then the dynamic will change. If Labour can hold their lead further into the year, into the autumn, possibly towards the end of the year, then I think you're looking at a situation where the Conservatives go into a kind of their own panicky meltdown. Obviously, it's hard to call.
0: George, you've written in the magazine about Labour this week. What do you make of that? Do you think it's a possibility Labour can hold steady, as it were?
2: Hold steady in terms of... In terms
0: of their poll ratings, in terms of uh, not letting the Tories win the argument, as Raph described.
2: Yeah, it's, it's there are a few uh, sort of nervous people in Labour ranks. The mm. polls have been narrowing, so you know, Labour's, Labour's poll lead has roughly, roughly halved at the end of last year from about 11 points in 2012 to about mm. 6, and now you're getting 5s and 4s, which is a little too close to comfort given that... The recovery is obviously going to continue to accelerate. The big two trends to watch, of course, as ever, are how many 2010 Lib Dems can Labour hold on to mm. and uh, how many 2010 Tory voters can, can UKIP hold on to. Um, it's always worth remembering you know, Labour can win big on, on, on quite a small lead, as they did in in 2005 but I think so 15 months out from an election you'd probably want to be a bit more than 4 yeah. or 5 points ahead in the polls
0: and you've written this week about this um, this difference between sort of good borrowing and mm. bad borrowing and how uh, a lot of the things Labour say they want to do, house building uh, better welfare state, all this kind of stuff costs money uh, and yet they won't commit to saying we would have to spend money, it's this kind of interesting catch 22 they've got themselves into is that something that they're going to feel even more worried about doing, given that the polls have narrowed like they are?
2: I think so. I think because the Conservatives have extended their, their lead on the economy, um, voters have always believed that cuts are unnecessary and, and mm. also blamed Labour for the cuts more than the toys. But now there's evidence that they even think cuts have been good for the economy. And so Labour hasn't even attempted to make the case explicitly for borrowing to invest, despite the fact that as you suggest, if you want a mass house building program, if you want universal child care, these things cost money. Mm. And in fiscally constrained times, the only way to pay for them is to borrow. And so I've spoken to uh, some MPs in the party who, who do want Ed Miliband and Ed Balls to be upfront about this now and to try to reframe the debate. Mm. Um, and so to to start using sort of the Tories household analogies against them so for instance it does make sense for an individual to borrow to take out a mortgage in certain circumstances particularly if the payments are lower than their rent it makes sense to borrow to buy a car if it means you can travel to a job that pays more than your your current one Mm. Uh, there are people in Labour who think that argument can be won and that the party needs to start making it now rather than a few months before the general election suddenly announcing yes we are going to we are going to borrow yeah, i think rough. that,
1: that uh, george is absolutely right that, that labor need to now decontaminate the idea of of borrowing to invest and i think the problem that they have and uh, i i feel the penny is now starting to drop on this one in in senior labor circles that they can't make that argument when people think that they are still lax on on current spending and looking back on it i think the the feeling is that they really did need earlier to make clear that they recognised that there was a trade-off between your day-to-day spending, the money going on things like housing benefit, which is very unpopular, which isn't terribly productive. A lot of it goes into the pockets of landlords, um, so that you then have the capacity to do all this other you know, healthy, productive spending. And, and to borrow George's analogy, that the problem that Labour will have is when they say, well, yes, you need to borrow money so you can get a car to get to another job – the, the sort of counter argument is yes but if you then borrow that money to get a car and you're also maxing out your credit card to spend it all on booze and fags <laughs> then that's actually not a very good way to run your affairs and so Labour really need I think there's this line that's been around this is that Labour need to take our fiscal puppy and shoot it you know something that people will suddenly make it clear they understand that there are going to be serious sacrifices in the current spending Um and the The problem is, if they'd done that earlier on, they would be on firmer ground. Now that puppy's grown into a nice, happy, you know, Labrador that, you know, licks their hands and makes them feel loved and and appreciated. And it's all that harder to shoot.
0: Is this an issue of we've? I think we've talked before about the fact that Labour and particularly Ed Miliband's project he lacks outriders. He lacks the people who are willing to go on TV and float the more extreme versions of the idea so that he can move into the space.
1: That In fairness, to I don't adopt, think right. there's been a shortage of people on the Labour side saying you need to demonstrate that you get it on current spending and fiscal rigor. I don't think there have been many people saying because you can therefore win an argument on mm-hmm. borrowing. And and I think if those people had made that argument more clearly, they might have got more of a hearing. I think the problem has been more that you know, in order to hold the party together it has been in, in the culture of the Labour Party, very, very difficult to tell people things they don't particularly want to hear in terms of what a tight current spending fiscal settlement actually feels like for Labour people and Labour voters.
0: And another difference that's opened up a little bit between the parties this, year, uh, this week is on the issue of women, and particularly women at the top of politics. Um, you mentioned in your piece, Raf, that the Tories are suffering a small exodus of female MPs standing down. Uh, at PMQs this week, uh, Ed Miliband made... The visual point that the Tory front bench didn't contain any women unlike his own. Um, is that something about the Conservative culture that's?
1: turning women away? I'm not an expert on being... On no, I feels know, it like you are culture, But politics. I do know, I do. Yes, I think it is. And and although the counter-argument you get from the Conservative side is, well, look, actually lots of Labour women are standing down too, that's a dead end for the, the sort of intellectual cul-de-sac. When you haven't to got to so many, many in the first place. Yeah. It, clearly Labour are streets ahead in terms of getting women represented in Parliament. Um, and t- certainly there isn't that mood around uh, the Labour Party, as there is around the Conservative Party, that a bunch of angry white men are defining what the party is mm. I, in the piece I describe it as a kind of coagulation of, the, of conservatism it's not fluid, it's not open it's becoming hard and shriveled and that is it, it might be enough in terms of mobilising certain arguments effectively to get them over the finish line in an election but culturally it, it, it really suggests a party in quite serious decline for the long term and, and the sensible people in the Conservative Party know that and they're very worried about it
0: now, George, did it strike you this week that that was an effective line of attack for for Ed Miliband? I mean, I know we've I've talked a bit, Helen Lewis, our deputy editor, has written quite a lot about the the lack of women in Ed Miliband's backroom team, but his front bench is really quite equal gender wise. It
2: is, and uh, having Harriet Harman as as deputy leader has helped, and, and Miliband has made this commitment to have um, you know, nearly half or half of his, mm. his shadow cabinet as, as women throughout. His leadership, and of course, Labour have all women shortlists. I mean, that is the big difference between mm. uh, them, uh, the Lib Dems and the Tories. Uh, that uh, obviously the the debate goes on as to whether they're. Uh, right in principle, but I think everyone recognises that they, they have secured a, a, an increase in, in, in female representation that would have been unthinkable otherwise. It's
0: an ends versus means debate, isn't it? It does achieve getting more women in Parliament, whether you believe the means are right or not.
2: Yeah, and I mean at, PM, like
0: discussion, yeah.
2: at PMQs, I mean, they quite deliberately made sure that there were a lot of women on on the front bench. Everyone was wondering why the why the Labour front bench was, was so <laughs> crowded that day. They they had ten women on on the Labour front bench and compared to to nine men. Um, but uh, and then Miliband was going to make the point. He you know, had planned in advance to make the point. Look, there are only one or two women on the Tory front bench. It turned out that there were none. They and walked that was into just his trap. Yeah. I think I think Maria Miller walked into the house about twenty past twelve, perhaps having sort of. Hurriedly summoned by by the whips. <laughs> so you'd love to read uh, that text
1: message, wouldn't you? get into the chamber, there's no there are no women <laughs> on the front bench.
2: Um, but it, I think the pictures were terrible for the Tories on, mm. on, on the on the on the six o'clock, ten o'clock news, which is where most voters uh, see PMQs if, if if they see it at all. Um, I think the Tories do have a problem with women voters. It used to be that uh, they had more women voters than than male voters, but now I checked uh, you know, the most recent YouGov poll. Labour has a nine point lead among women compared to just a three point lead among men, I and mean, that is a problem.
0: Mm. Very interesting. Thank you very much, George. Thanks, okay. Raph.
4: I'm joined by our arts editor, Kate Mossman, and the editor of the New Statesman website, Caroline Crampton, to talk about Taylor Swift, who is everyone's favourite teen pop sensation, even if you're not a teenager. Um, Kate, I believe you recently saw uh, Taylor in action at the O2, uh, and were rather surprised by the demographic.
5: Yeah, I did. Um, she's, she's established a sort of residency in the O2 by doing, I think, five nights over like 11 Vegas. days. It's amazing, yeah. Um, I last saw her when she was 19, although, to be fair, she always sort of feels about 30. This mm, is she's the always bizarre looked things. so old, hasn't yeah. she? For, for her age. Six she's, foot tall, yeah. very kind of um, such poise and, mm. and I suppose a certain amount of grace. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the last saw her, she was 19 and, and the audience was comprised mostly of 14-year-olds and the audience this year um, was a lot younger in some ways and also had a, a hell of a lot more people about sort of 35 <laughs> with their fists in the air. Um, all saying, I mean, friends of mine who went were saying, "Sort of, no, I'm, I'm not being ironic. I really, really like her," <laughs> and I just thought it was very funny that so many adults are saying, "No, no, there's no joke here. We really like Taylor Swift."
0: And um, why? Why do you think that is?
5: I think that there's a. Oh, I, I think it's a, a a big question, but I think there's a, an escapism in the music that um, appeals to
1: the older. Things. you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb. dot com slash host.
5: You get. Mm-hmm. So the uh, the little eight year olds who are going along with the pink cowboy hats and the slash of red lipstick in the front are sort of you know seeing this this woman as a potential a big sister, a Disney princess. You know your advisor, your life advisor, and I think people of of my age who are going are thinking wow i wish i was a teenager (laughs) because the way this woman parcels this this world out with all its romance and its its purity it has a very sort of simplified view of what the the sadnesses are of growing up there's nothing about spots and um you know uh feeling fat and Mm -hmm. and hating your gym class it's more about um, the fact that your dad won't let you see that boy who's in love with you. And, you know, when, when I was 15, there weren't any boys in love with me. I <laughs> kind of like the idea that in Taylor Swift's world, no, they are, it's all perfect. You know, you'll go to that prom, you'll get picked up in that car and you'll be proposed to on the front porch. Yeah, by um, Jake Gyllenhaal. Exactly. I mean, this is a strange thing.
4: I mean, you know, Taylor Swift has had a pretty high profile selection of um, trysts over the last few years. How does she manage to speak to the every girl other than i mean her her look is so you know utterly every every girl but why why do people buy it what is it about her
5: it must be the sort of the psychodramas that she is um laying out in the songs sort of deconstructing um feelings of disappointment And hope mingled with reality and also a certain amount of of being an individual. So she was famously not very popular at school because she, well, the reality was that she was focused on being a pop star. So Mm. she might say, oh, I was terribly skinny and gawky and ugly and no one fancied me but the truth was that she went to Nashville at the age of 14 and got a songwriting contract and you know if you are like that then Mm. there's no time for anything else
0: that makes me think of one of her earlier videos from a few years ago when she um, she was sort of dressed up like a band that she was in a band and she was wearing sort of big dorky glasses um and she didn't even need to take them off for you to see how perfect her face was yeah. underneath it was sort of like it was like this geekiness or kind of loserdom was that like a prop that she could put on um and um i found that completely attractive like yeah even, even now i sort of thought oh i wish this had existed like 15 years ago <laughs> there was a very strange um uh
5: sort of part of the set um or the the last tour that she did where she she would sort of have these big um, reveals that were beamed up onto the the monitors of having gone back to school and humiliated the boy who didn't fancy her or the girl that was rude to her. And they were played by actors and <laughs> there was a kind of um, um, a, a mass screaming session when someone would be you know, found in a locker room to have Upset her in the past, and then she's sort of like show them up on camera, and she has grown out of that now. There's no, um, there's none of that, but she does do an awful lot of talking down to the audience, which I just found the the one thing about the show that just made me want to bang my head into the wall was that she will be doing this brilliantly slick set, and then she'll step forward and go, I. I get the feeling that there are loads of creative people here, Um, whether it's writing in your journal or picking up a banjo like me and writing a song and stuff. And you're thinking, you don't need this. Just get on with the show because the kids love it anyway. Mm. Um, And that was the one point when all the adults standing in this 15,000-strong arena were just shaking their heads and going, actually, this isn't that good at all.
4: (laughs) Yeah, that's what I can't quite get my head around, if I'm perfectly honest. And there are enough lyrics that you could... You know, pick out in ab- in abstract and say, "I mean, this is truly terrible, obnoxious <laughs> stuff." Um, you know and I say that as a fan yeah exactly.
5: <laughs> so you're doing it now as yeah, well we no,
4: exactly. it. but for me it's purely that there's such catchy pop songs yeah and it's, it's, not, it's no more complicated than that I have zero desire to ever see her in the O2 <laughs> if I'm perfectly honest but um, you know I, I read a big long profile of her in, in New York magazine and, and, and the writer talked about things like so she was doing her set you know and it was sort of real tour de force stuff pyrotechnics theatricality and then she said I'm really sorry I have to run off and blow my Nose.
5: oh come on yeah
4: do you think this <laughs> that's is-
5: the problem and, it, and I, I like in a way i like how awful this this part of the show is because it shows there's no one advising her properly yeah and that suggests that she really is this kind of amazing brunhilde sort of um ego force that she manages herself as well there isn't really anyone pushing her around very much. So she's allowed to make these ridiculous oversights and misjudgments, which you can still see her making at the same time as being a brilliant performer. Mm. So it's sort of
0: weirdly comforting that she gets things <laughs> really so wrong. I really like that about her as well, actually, because I perhaps naively think that if she did have a kind of whole team behind her we there'd be none of the kind of costumes you see her wearing now, it would all be kind of tiny shorts and um, boob tubes yeah. and sort of very sexualised videos, the fact that she doesn't really go, she does a bit but she doesn't really go in for that, yet suggests that she's just gone really fancy it i'm just going to do yeah long floaty dresses and long gloves i'm not comfortable with a cleavage yeah. or yeah you know, mm.
5: i'm just
4: going to do this well on that is she for a different audience to sort of the miley, miley cyrus you know because you have the pop stars who are going down a real of looking to, to create controversy and have you know like said just youtube videos and whatever taylor swift is is wholesome no
5: yeah she's well the, the sort of chastity of it is very much part of the um the power I yes think. the
4: telegraph were very keen on her i noticed yeah that, maybe maybe they that's they she's nothing like that disastrous it's so smiley easy, isn't it, to oh, say that. this is
5: the critic darling thing it's so easy to just latch on to someone and say well she doesn't show her breasts therefore <laughs> she's a serious musician and she's not really i mean she's she's a, a really good songwriter and she's committed but there is there's not a, a great depth to her music that you don't hear in in Katy Perry or Lady Gaga i mean they all sort of to a certain extent have a pool of songwriters uh, Taylor Swift always co-writes, um, but you know, there's. Well, we'll look back on these songs in twenty or thirty years' time, and they'll feel much of a kind. They sound similar mm. in a way. She just happens to have the uh, the country element. She doesn't overdo it on the production. There's always a bit of, of, of banjo, and there's some very, very romantic lyrics rather than sort of um, uh, sort of the breast beating and the, mm. the two fingers all the time. I think it's there's 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 not that much difference at all. But it's the presentation and the committedness of that sort of disney princess chastity thing along with the sort of bitch side which she can do very well i think that's what's getting through to people
4: and you allude to the fact that she's rumored to be playing Joni mitchell in a movie in a biopic in the future and you know i um once again as a fan i i i I would just um my feeling is that i really hope to god that that doesn't happen i think that would be a (laughs) deep travesty i think that would be a terrible thing for all of us
5: i have mixed feelings about it because i was horrified when i first found that out but i think apart from Joni mitchell Swift is the only person I can think of who generates momentum for her songs by the end of relationships, Mm. moving through them all the time and then writing about them. And I do think it's interesting. I mean, Joni Mitchell is above and beyond Taylor Swift in every way. (laughs) But, you know, 30 years ago, people wouldn't have been sitting there going, oh, she can't hold down a real relationship. What's she writing these songs about? Mm. Because songwriting is songwriting and if, and if, if it gives you um, energy to write about the end of a relationship to the point where maybe you don't actually sustain one in adult life for quite a long period because you're a songwriter that goes, that's in the territory of songwriting.
0: And I suppose you could say perhaps honestly that is there that much difference between Uh, Joni Mitchell sort of hanging around on a Greek island and writing songs like Carrie Mm. um, about her doomed relationship there Uh, and Taylor Swift writing songs about Harry Styles you know they are sort of of a genre even if one is better than the other.
5: Yeah it's one of the great sort of um, music cliches isn't it you can't you can't write songs if you're happy Mm. so I'm sure that Taylor Swift is in bouts of of anxiety all the time about what happens if I meet the man of my dreams and have a baby I'm going to stop being able to write songs that sell to teenagers.
0: Adele said that as well hasn't she that her her two sort of award-winning albums each was about the end of a very significant relationship that she had and now she's married and she's got a kid and stuff and (laughs) I've not really heard much from her in the last 12 months.
5: Just to
4: finish can you explain what Taylor Swift's Who Me face is?
5: Oh this is oh this is terrible um this is very very well well trodden ground in a sense, but she it, it has to be because it's just so wrong and it's one of these things she needs to lose but again because she hasn't lost anything interesting <laughs> no advisors um, she when I first saw her she um created a kind of fever pitch um hysteria in the crowd at the the point of the um applause by the camera focusing right in on her face while she does a what you are clapping for me <laughs> expression of surprise and because she doesn't say anything to stop the applause it just grows and grows and grows and if your audience is 12 they're very good at getting hysterical and practically vomiting with excitement so she she um didn't just do that at the end of the the show this time but she does it in between songs as well and it's very much part of her thing and there is an internet meme of her various clips from um award shows that have just been put together under the name taylor swift looking surprised um and it's it's not genuine at all but it's weirdly lovable something, I though. <laughs> something adolescent though is something teenager very adolescent okay well i think i'm gonna go dramatic. practice my
4: who me face in in the loo uh, thanks kate thanks caroline
3: i'm joined by our science and tech blogger ian Stedman, to talk about Sinkholes. First of all, in who or what is a sinkhole?
6: A sinkhole is a hole in the ground. But could (laughs) you give us (laughs) more detail? It's um, it's when a hole forms underground and then the surface falls into it. Um, you you asked me to look into this because of what happened in the news last week with a family in High Wycombe, which is just outside London. Um, uh, this this woman woke up to go ready for work and looked out her window and said, hmm, "That's funny. My car's not there." Um and then went to her front door and there was a big hole in the front gr- in the front yard where the car was and the car was at the bottom you couldn't see it. Apparently, Um, and this happens quite a lot.
3: This is what I find fascinating about this is that once you start looking into this, this isn't an uncommon occurrence, both in places that have generally much more exciting geological and you know, weather Mm. things than us. But in Britain, it happens relatively. Oh, it does. But is it like a bit like earthquakes? Are little ones happening? Oh, yeah, all the
6: time, all the time. Um, Well, High Wycombe. Uh, itself is there's this big uh, sort of chalky strata that runs underneath the ground there and chalk is uh, well along with limestone There's kind of the culprits here because uh, they dissolve in water really readily so say you have um, a a river that goes underground into an aquifer or you have a leaky pipe, this often happens in um, developing countries which can't afford good plumbing where you get um, sort of potholes which are really sinkholes under the roads because Pipings burst, well, You whatever. say
3: it happens in developing countries, but I seem to remember that Thames water loses like, oh, m- loads. thousands and thousands of gallons of water out of its pipes, because it's essentially relying on a lot of time oh, to, yeah. on Victorian yeah, people Absol- when they had proper engineers. <laughs> <do you
6: think? laughs> proper engineers, yeah. Um, but it happens, I mean, uh, in America, it's, it's a particularly bad problem in Florida, which has gained itself the nickname the Swiss cheese state. Because they have something um I believe it was fifteen thousand potholes were recorded in 2013 alone which is uh, I mean most of those are quite small and are probably just you know pothole size but they do swallow up houses there was a guy who died in a pothole his is um well from the outside his house looked normal um, but when you went inside the entire bedroom was just gone sort of 20 feet underground um, his- that's
3: kind of fascinating they they're so Localized in a sense mm. that 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 a whole bit of just everything underneath in in a relatively narrow corridor can just drop out. Yeah. Presumably, but there's a nice side to sinkholes as well this is what I liked about the piece you wrote in the magazine is that you sort of started waxing quite lyrical about underwater forests and stuff (laughs) like
6: that Um, they they can be quite nice and weird Um, there's the one in Venezuela where um, it's in the rainforest but because these things are like 200 metres below the surface, these giant almost craters at the bottom they have their own rainforest ecosystems which are kind of separated from one above and they're quite interesting to study Um, the this is something i didn't know until i was researching this piece is that the asteroid that killed off the dinosaurs um 700 million years ago
3: which it, fell in mexico right
6: yeah on what is now the yucatan peninsula um it's like sort of half on what is now land half in what is the gulf of mexico but the bit that's on land now there is an extraordinary large number of sinkholes in that area because the asteroid changed the geology of the area um and uh, they're called um cenotes or cenotes i don't know how to pronounce, but um they are huge things they go down to like uh the aquifers beneath the water and the mayans used to sacrifice people there because they thought they were sort of sacred uh sort of places where you go to the underworld or something um and these days they're quite nice for diving and also for, uh, for diving underwater but also for spelunking spelunking and really free jumping people love to uh what fa- is spelunking a uh, spelunking is is basically going into a cave, cave diving yeah right. yeah
3: um, my question is, so if you want to buy a house, you have it surveyed to check that there's no you know, damp in the walls or whatever. Is there anything you can do about finding out whether it's built over a massive, scary hole?
6: Basically, no. Unless there happens to be some kind of like tunneling work nearby and they happen to come across it, it's it's really bad. You can't do it. I mean, with a hurricane or any of the... Most natural disasters, even if you don't see it coming, there is a way to work out if it's coming. But sinkholes are just so widespread it's impossible. I mean, in Florida, sinkholes have actually been... Uh, attributed with slowing down the recovery of the housing market there because the pre-insurance premiums for houses at risk of sinkholes which is like the whole state are now so high they can run to thousands of dollars that it's making it hard for people to afford to buy houses
3: right i'm going to file them in that case with spiders on things i can't do anything about and therefore it's not worth worrying about thank you very much ian Mm -hmm. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. We're produced by Philip Morn and our theme tune is Devil with the Devil by the underscore orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons.